Thanks, Nathan. That was seamless. Just thought I'll have enough time to have enough time to get uh, the microphone on while Esther was praying. But no. <laughs> Thanks so much for being here. You know, it's cool. I had my guitar, and so you know, the thought crossed my mind that um, I could do the message today as a musical, <laughs> but um, I couldn't come up with a song for the third point. So. <laughs> So sorry, you've got to hear me talk. <laughs> um, thanks so much for being here. Well, if, you are, if you're not new to Hills, you would know that at the start of each message, we do a quick recap of where we're up to. If you are new, we're going through the story, which is, a, which is scriptures which are put into, a, a, into story form, and it tells the upper story of God's plan at work. I'm going to try and give you a really abridged version this morning. So we're up to chapter 14 now, and... We're about a thousand years now after that point in time where God tells Abraham that he's going to start a nation. And uh, up until now, well, the, the Israel has taken up residence in the land that God has promised. And at this point in time, there would be, there'd be millions of Israelites that have inhabited the land. And I would say it's fair to say that the nation is now well established. And under David and then Solomon... Um, they've had a really good time of it. They've been um, successful in the region. Um, they're cashed up. And Solomon's building things, and it's good. The events of um, chapter 14 are incredibly significant in Israel's history. And so this morning, we're going to spend a little bit more time looking at the story. And, just, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time just to see what we can learn from it. But first, let's just briefly remember where chapter 13 ended. King Solomon, by his end, had married, wait for this, 700, that's right, 700 wives, had 300 concubines, and by whom, as we hear in the Bible, he was led astray. Solomon, we know, is also responsible for writing a lot of the Proverbs. And I've picked a few out here um, that I'll read. There's some wisdom. It says, a man who finds a wife finds a treasure, and he receives favour from the Lord. Well, Solomon found a lot of treasure, because he found a lot of wives. <laughs> Lucky him. Maybe. Let's keep going. A quarrelsome wife... A quarrelsome wife... Yeah, brave. No, not lucky. Uh, sorry, let me read on. A quarrelsome wife is as annoying as constant dripping on a rainy day. I wonder what happened earlier that day, when he went to write that one. It's better to live alone in the desert than with a quarrelsome, complaining wife. He maybe he's up to, I don't know, wife number 500 or something like that. Here's the last one I'll read. It's better to live alone in the corner of an attic than with a quarrelsome wife in a lovely home. <laughs> and I can kind of imagine Solomon sitting in his attic, kind of crouching, trying to escape the noise down below in the house or something. I don't know. Hectic. But as Solomon grew... Old, his wives turned his heart after other gods we hear, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And so the Lord told him, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I'll most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. And at the start of chapter 14, which is titled, A Kingdom torn in two, we're introduced to that subordinate, and his name is Jeroboam. 
through the prophet Ahijah, the Lord tells Jeroboam that he will be the future king. And here we read that. However, as for you, I will take you and you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and I will give Israel to you. Well, Solomon, he catches wind that Jeroboam has been anointed and in a story eerily similar to that of Saul and David, he goes after Jeroboam to kill him. And Jeroboam escapes to Egypt because in Israel, that's where you go to escape. (laughs) Eventually, Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam is in line to ascend the throne. And this is where it starts getting interesting. There is a lot going on in the nation and it's all about to come together to a head. During the peaceful reign of Solomon, he spent seven years building the first temple. He built palaces, he built great halls, he, built, he rebuilt several cities, he commissioned fleets of ships and built numerous harbours to accommodate the bounty of the trade routes and he constructed stables to house his thousands of horses and chariots. He's the builder. He's like Eric Hall with 999 more wives and, <laughs> and a lot less character. But, uh, but to get it done, Solomon raises taxes beyond what the people could afford and he conscripted them to build. So in the melting pot of Israel in this time, 1000 BC, Solomon has died. Rehoboam is about to ascend to the throne. Jeroboam comes back because he's now a little safer. And the Israelites, who are all discontent with the high tax and work rates, there's no workers' union that's willing to stick their neck out to, to, um, to risk their life to advocate for them. And all the 12 tribes are converging together at this place called Shechem to talk terms with Rehoboam. And this is where it all goes down. They say, your father put a heavy yoke on us. But now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. And so the people went away. So Rehoboam asked the elders who had served Solomon before him for their advice. They say, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who'd grown up with him and were serving him. And they say, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke and I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips I will scourge you with scorpions. And you can almost visualize how this has gone down. You know, Rehoboam's, I don't know, he's probably at the track at the chariot races with his mates. And he's like, you know what the 12 tribes told me? And they say, because they know exactly what Rehoboam wants to hear. They say, you tell them they don't know how good they've got it. You think 
King Solomon was bad. You look out for the Ray train. And, um, and he's like, yeah, because that's what he wanted them to say. And you can guess what happens. He follows the advice of his mates, and the fallout is immediate. The ten northern tribes of Israel crowned Jeroboam as the king of the north in Israel, and the tribe of Judah remained faithful to their own in the south, Rehoboam, and that's it. The kingdom of Israel is split in two, Israel and Judah, and they both descend into chaos. In the south in Judah, we hear that during Rehoboam's reign, sorry, the people... It's confusing, Rehoboam, Jeroboam. (laughs) Anyway, um, during Rehoboam's reign, the people of Judah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, provoking with anger, sorry, provoking his anger with their sin. For it was even worse than that of their ancestors. The people imitated the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. They're now worse in the promised land than what the people who were residing in the promised land were. And in the north, Jeroboam thinks to himself that unless he's careful, the kingdom will return to the dynasty of David. And when the people head south to the temple to sacrifice and worship in Jerusalem, they may be swayed and they'll pledge allegiance to Judah. And so Jeroboam decides that he's going to construct two calves, one on the northern end of his province and one on the southern end of his province, so the people no longer have to travel to Jerusalem to worship. And in his words, he says, you can now worship the gods that brought you out of Egypt, the calves. We're back there again. A lot of the time between the two was spent in civil war with one another. And while they focus on each other, the region around them develops. And Israel is eventually conquered by the Assyrian Empire. And Judah is eventually conquered by the Babylonian Empire. And that's as far as we're going to get um, in the story for the moment. But here's a spoiler. And, you know, this is probably the fifth time I've spoken, and I love a little bit of history. And for 3,000 years now, Israel has never really recovered. They've never united. They've been dominated in the region. After the Babylonians, it was Alexander the Great, then the Romans, then the Byzantines, then they came under Arab rule, then Crusaders dominated the area, then once again Arab rule, and then the Ottoman Empire ruled them for hundreds of years before, in World War I, the British Empire. All to say, Israel's history is not a history of triumph. Now, it's all pretty interesting, but it makes me think about the stark contrast about the Israelites under the leadership of Solomon and Rehoboam, as opposed to Joshua, all of those years before. Faithful to God, strong and courageous, united in vision, clear on their purpose in amongst all of the obstacles they were were thrown at, and they were active on all of those things. On the other hand, a leader like Solomon, post his 700 wives, or Rehoboam with selfish ambition, compromised on their own personal faith and they were misguided in their mission. So Israel is no longer united and I feel the saddest part of this story is that it could have been avoided. 
In the teaching drawn from the scriptures today, we're going to look at the mistakes that were made in some of the key moments that drove a wedge through the nation of God's chosen people and not only divided them, but caused them to lose sight of the truth. The same pitfalls are still there today for us as God's people. But if we can identify the temptations, then we're presented with some opportunities to grow together. I've titled today's message, A Kingdom United, because the question I want to explore is, how do we unite together and stay united as God's people? And our first lesson today comes from the story of Jeroboam. I had to do a double take on Ahijah the prophet's message to Jeroboam. He says, if you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me as David, my servant, did, I'll be with you. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. A dynasty, multiple generations of Jeroboam's children on the throne. And we know that Um, You know, we've heard in the past the importance of the family line throughout Israel's history. This promise is a big deal for someone like Jeroboam, particularly in that culture. But as we read earlier, the nation descended into chaos, and Jeroboam gets it epically wrong. Has anyone ever heard of a um, sliding doors moment? It's the idea that you play out a story or you read a story... And there's all these decisions that are made along the way to the end of that story. The sliding doors moment is if at some point along that storyline you take one of the decisions that were made and you just sort of hypothesize or imagine what would have happened if a different decision was made at that point and the trajectory that the story might have taken. Well, the prophet, we don't really need to imagine what might have happened because the prophet gives us some idea. He tells us that Jeroboam, if he had made that decision to trust in the Lord, would have gone on to establish an enduring dynasty. But it is the fear of losing what God gave him, his rule, which drives his decisions. The establishment of two golden calves for the Israelites so that they wouldn't return to Jerusalem and potentially be swayed to align with Judah, that becomes Jeroboam's legacy. What God promised to Jeroboam is a united and enduring kingdom. God promises these things because he can. Unity is a gift of God. That's our first point this morning. Yet as we see, the door that Jeroboam takes is to work in fear that his dynasty will be destroyed and almost forgetting or maybe not even believing the promise of God. In week six of the story, Adam brought this point to us, and it stayed with me. He said, the enemy of faith is forgetfulness. And I find it pretty ironic because many of you will know I've got a terrible memory. And so remembering a point about the importance of remembering, I think is just like, that is irony. But... If, like Jeroboam, we forget the promises that the Lord has already given, then we're likely to work within our own capacity, which is limited. Within our own thought processes, 
which are limited, to achieve what we want, which is a very small picture. The Lord gives Jeroboam and David a similar promise. If you obey my decrees and commands, I will build you a dynasty. These are big picture promises. Jeroboam's response to that promise is not notable. In fact, didn't even read it in the Bible. It wasn't there. But when God promises to David a similar future, and in 2 Samuel, God gives David this word, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Listen to how David response. And he marks this promise with humble praise. Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, but you also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. Can you hear the humility? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, sovereign Lord, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. This promise that comes to David, he didn't earn it. It's just given to him. And David knows it and you can hear that in his response. So let us not forget the promises that God has given us, church. Because as we do, so too will we lose our faith. The first application this morning for us is to remember the promises of God and remember them with rejoicing as David did. If you want to bring up the next slide, um, Joseph, thank you. I just thought um, I'm going to put this up there. If you want to take a snapshot of this, these are some promises that I've, that I've picked out. I'm going to read them briefly. God promised that if we search for him, we will find him. He's not playing hard to get. That's in Deuteronomy. Let's keep reading. God promised that his love will never fail. He's faithful in every way. He promised Israel that their sin could be forgiven, their prosperity restored, the nation healed. And as we remember a couple of weeks ago, repentance opened the way for fellowship and gives us a blessing. God promised that all things will work out for good for his children. This is the perspective from the upper story that keeps us going in those times of trouble. He promised abundant life to those who followed him, eternal life to those who trust him, power through the Holy Spirit to turn the world upside down. And Jesus also promised that he will return for us in John chapter 14. These are the promises that if we take hold of them, they shape what we do, how we live our life. If we live according to these promises, we live a God-fearing and centered life. All right, point two that I sort of thought about in this, in this story as we read through, that unity is developed in crisis. And I want to explore the comparison between Rehoboam and the Israelite hero, Joshua. Just a little further, why is it that the kingdom under Joshua's rule flourishes and the kingdom under Solomon and Rehoboam fractures. And I think a lot of the detail is, is, is in how they handle the crisis. 
Take Rehoboam to start. The 12 tribes of Israel talk to him. They say, light and the harsh labor and the heavy yoke your father put on us and we will serve you. The crisis here is that Rehoboam has inherited a throne and the people are not happy. It is an unhappy kingdom. And I think these sorts of conversations were going to happen. It was going down regardless of whoever it was that was going to ascend to the throne. They've been work solid, they're taxed hard, but the opportunity is presented to the would-be king. If you make these choices, if you treat us well, Rehoboam will serve you. But as we discover, he makes a poor choice. He makes a selfish choice. Now, Joshua, what happens when he's presented with his crisis? He crosses the Jordan. You know, Joshua is the first Israel leader to enter into the promised land. He brings the people, they cross the Jordan, and the first city that they come across is Jericho. Mighty walls. And the Israelites are looking at it and they're thinking, we don't have the infrastructure to bring this city down. In our power, it can't be done. And Joshua gathers the 12 tribes, the generals, and he said, been talking to the Lord, and he said, we're going to walk around the wall a few times. We're going to blow our trumpets. The walls are going to come down. We're going to sack the city. We're going to be good. And I can imagine that the Israelite generals are probably thinking, okay, but we're with you, Joshua. Let's do it. And they remain focused and united together, all 12 tribes marching, marching around. And what happens? The city of Jericho is sacked with just Rahab who helps Israel's army and her family spared. And we find out that later Rahab was a member of the lineage of Jesus Christ. The nation is unified then. They, they rejoice together. And all of these incredible things that happen because of united people all following Christ together. Rehoboam, who had this wonderful opportunity to succeed the throne, but he followed his heart. And what do we know of the heart? In Jeremiah chapter 17, it says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search the hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Ouch. Rehoboam had witnessed the compromise of his father's faith. His example of spiritual leadership was Solomon, who, as we read, his life was typified by compromised faith. I heard this saying once, and I'm, I don't know who said it. I tried to find out, but um, a lot of people said it. It is our ceiling is our next generation's floor. And I love it because what it says to me is that the legacy that we leave, the ceiling that we build, is the foundation for those that come after us to build upon. Solomon, the structure that Solomon built was not strong enough for Rehoboam to build from, and it all quickly came crashing down around him. So here's my question, and it's our second application. It's time to get honest and answer yourself. How did I respond in my last crisis? Did I look to see what I can gain? Or did I seize the opportunity to advance the kingdom? 
Did I witness in adversity a demonstration of good temperament, love, goodness, faithfulness to God? Or did I blame? Was I just plain mean or nasty? Did I fight unnecessarily? One response builds a stronger ceiling. The other tears it down. One way unites, the other way divides. If um, the story that we've been reading, you know, chapter 14 or whatever, all the way up to this point, has highlighted anything so far is that God doesn't use the self-righteous and the proud among his people to do great things. He uses those who are humble, those who know they need help. I need help. Lastly, I think we need to remember who the enemy is. Satan hates unity among God's people. Why? Because he's been there throughout history and he's seen both sides. The destructive power and waste of a divided kingdom. But he's also seen the unrelenting might of a kingdom united together. You know, think of Joshua. He hates, Satan Yates hates the unity amongst each other and with unity our Father and every temptation is designed to destroy both. The third point this morning is that unity is constantly threatened. Now I'm not some kind of cultural commentary savant or anything, but um, I don't need to look too far to see that the same wedges that are being driven to divide our world, our families, our churches, are the same wedges that have been used throughout history. Wherever unity exists, so is Satan looking to destroy it. It is constantly threatened. Three of the wedges that I noticed from the story of um, the, the Boehms, which we can learn from, the first is pride. Not once did we see Rehoboam consult God, nor did he listen to the wise counsel of his advisors or listen to his people. Rehoboam was closed to opinions and ideas outside of his own, and he did everything in his own power and strength. And in, a little, in just quick research this week, many psychologists agree one of the greatest culprits of pride is comparison and competition. Rehoboam had the lofty standard of David and maybe to a lesser extent Solomon, to live up to. The need for him to be greater than his father before him drove him to mistreat those that he was supposed to serve as as their king, and it divided them. So let's celebrate great ideas, wherever they come from, and continue to build a culture of healthy collaboration. The second wedge I noticed is spiritual and emotional maturity. And there is constant evidence that Rehoboam and Jeroboam had very little of either. It was likely their pride which prevented these two from personally developing and taking no time to develop themselves. They took a lot of time to push their own agenda. This topic could be a sermon series in its own right, (laughs) And um, 
some years ago, Pastor Nathan put us onto this emotional, emotionally healthy spirituality ministry by Peter Scazzaro. This Cazero is, is very honest about his journey in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, the book. And he discovered the hard way, the unhealthy patterns which led to his own demise. In his words, he says, I overfunctioned, I overperformed, I had cultural and not biblical expectations for marriage and family, I resolved conflict poorly, and I didn't let myself fear, feel. Sorry. He explored the idea that emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. A lot of the focus in this book is on slowing down to be with God, putting priority on rest, and that the idea of slowing down to be with God is not a sinful thing. Our inability to do this well in life impacts our ability to be relational with one another also. You know, we're careful to promote literature other than the Bible here from the pulpit. But the transforming change this teaching has had in many of our lives here that, that could attest is really hard to ignore. And so I, that book is worth a read. And hit me up. I'm sure I can get you a copy of it. The third wedge is change and inflexibility. Being too stubborn to listen to ideas or too stubborn to change. I think it's most typified by Jeroboam with all the promise. He had the opportunity to make change in the northern kingdom on the advice of the prophet sent from God and continue where David had left off. But it meant significant change. And his fear of what would happen to his rule got in the way. Proverbs 29 says, Fearing people is a dangerous trap, but trusting the Lord means safety. Interesting that Jeroboam took what he thought was the safe route, and it led to his demise and his disgrace. Wise believers look for the benefits of change. And in James chapter 3, we hear that wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. These are good words. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Wisdom is being open to reason and impartial. And I'm not saying compromising our core beliefs. No, that ruins relationships, particularly our relationship with God. However, being open to positive change and being quick to make peace in our relationships. We shouldn't let minor disagreements of our theological differences or maybe even our political ideologies deter us from what really matters. What really matters is us coming together as an unstoppable force serving together to the advance the kingdom. The events of this week's chapter clearly typify the recurring theme of the lower stories throughout the Old Testament, particularly through the time of Judges and Kings. It's that a kingdom united is unstoppable, but a kingdom divided quickly fails. 
just want to invite the band to come on up. And as a pastor of Hills Church, I may be a little biased in what I'm about to say. I feel like we're in a good season as a church. In ministry, we're united in vision and purpose. Fellowship is awesome. We're going to head out shortly and we're going to have a great time together. People, we're seeing they're coming to faith, which is incredible. Alpha is going amazing. Discipleship is happening in adults and it's in our children's ministry. We're a strong witness to our community. Come on, things are going great, amen? It's good, but we're warned, church. Very quickly, it can all be undone because unity does not just happen. Neither does it just remain. Be real. Are there any of these things in my life which are detrimental to it? Is there pride in my heart that needs to be addressed? Am I closed off to wise counsel? Am I engaging in emotionally unhealthy debate and conversation that I just simply need to let go? Unity is indeed a mighty gift from God. But as a church together and as individuals, we need to carefully protect it for the good of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, our desire is to see you move in a mighty way. God, the reason that we come to be discipled and, and hear your word is because we want to be more like you. God, help us to be more like you. Thank you for the times where you remain faithful during tough times in our history, in your people's history. God, but also thank you in your word that you demonstrated the power of what happens when we get it right. Because God, it is like a wave that nothing can stop. There's no power that can stop it, Father, when we're on board with you, united in vision and purpose under your leadership. And Father, that's where we want to be. God, remove the pride from our hearts. God, help us to repent of the sin that we've, that we've done against you and others whom we are brothers and sisters with. God, we want to come together, unite, and advance your kingdom like a wave that cannot be stopped. Father, we're praying for revival in our hearts and in our land. God, unite us, Father. All for your glory. Amen.